Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Save the Kids podcast. It's your one-stop shop for raising kids in this tech-heavy world. We bring on professionals and experts to give you all the tools you need to help your kids become fire-breathing warriors that have the strength to break out of the mold society has put them in. At the end of the day, we're all here for one reason, to help save some kids. I'm your host, Nate Webb. Let's get to it. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Save the Kids podcast. It's your host, Nate Webb, live in studio, Salt Lake City area, and we got a show for you today. You know, while we often advocate against screen dependency and addiction, screen addiction is not the only type of addiction ripping families apart right now. Addiction of all shapes and sizes, and most people handle them in a way that makes them worse. And so I brought someone on the show today that can help us understand addiction better and better yet how we can help our loved ones if they are in addiction themselves. So everybody welcome my friend Danny Deaton to the show. Danny is first and foremost a husband and a father to three energetic children. He's also a certified interventionist and the owner of Living Proof Recovery Services. As a 14-year recovering addict, Danny uses his expertise and knowledge to assist families to create a plan and support a complete path to recovery for their loved ones. Danny's passion is helping families unify so they can achieve change, make progress, and have long-term success well beyond sobriety. Welcome, welcome to the show, my friend. Happy to have you. Man, thanks for having me. I know we've been trying to do this for a minute, so I'm glad today's the day. Thank I know. We, we made it happen, man. Um, so addiction, man, it is a, a tragic tale, but you've been able to turn your trials into hope for so many families. Um, so as much as you're comfortable, man, I would love to kind of, you know, hop down memory lane a little bit, go down. Where did your addiction start? Where did your story start? Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a complex thing, and I kind of simplify it. Having told the story a few times, it kind of helps to just really touch on the the points that are important. Um, I do want to come back and address, you know, what the gateway drug is today. I think there's never one there's never one thing that you can pinpoint that's the problem for everybody. But there are what's called the gateway, which is kind of the leading thing that segues people down this path, right? Um, you know, and today it definitely is phones. It's oh. it without a doubt that is the gateway drug and what leads people to doing unthinkable things, right? Like right. Uh, self-medicating with alcohol, prescription drugs, illicit drugs that they never would have fathomed doing. If you trace it back to what kind of started it, it is phones. So we'll get back into that. But right. when my story started, phones weren't a big deal. It was more like pagers. I don't even right. know if you're <laughs> enough to know what pagers were, but. When I was yeah. like five, my dad yeah. had a pager. I have a very, yeah. very yeah, I'm 30. So yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and back then pornography was not like what it is today. It was a two-dimensional image on a piece of paper. So right. it was Playboy magazines. <laughs> times were different, but some of the same challenges still existed. And looking back, you know, I had as a child, I had like the picture perfect life. Like my parents were amazing. I can't even pinpoint one thing that they, I wish they would have done different or better. It was, they were my best friends. They were my heroes. They were my leaders. I was super active, healthy. I played lots of sports. I I loved school mainly for the social side. I just loved interacting with girls and getting in trouble, but just lighthearted <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So I just loved it. I was involved in church, scouts, sports, everything. And I think as a young person, I was just navigating life like anyone else. And what's funny is at the time I couldn't pinpoint it. Right. It was years down the road when I looked back and I kind of had these feelings of being inadequate because back then 
we still compared ourselves to other people. Right. And we didn't know anything different at the time. I mean, now people are comparing themselves to the world and it's all photoshopped and fake and yep. filtered. But back then you'd compare yourself to like the biggest jock in the school or the one guy who drove that cool Mustang and you didn't. And right. <laughs> you're constantly sizing yourself up of people's height and their, their muscle mass. And, you know, there was pressure of seeing a father who became successful and living in an area where a lot of people were. And I didn't even know back then, but it was just kind of like an underlying feeling I didn't like. Right. And I right. didn't navigate or address it. So as I grew up, I had some friends that were doing things that they probably shouldn't have. I got introduced to, to alcohol um, the summer before high school. And I actually felt so eighth grade. Ninth, yeah. Ninth grade here. Heading yeah, into ninth, ninth grade. grade. Yeah. And did it felt so guilty, so scared, knew I shouldn't be doing it. And what was crazy was even though I got real sick, like off of a very small amount of alcohol, I got right. real sick. But there was a moment during there, that period before I got sick where I just felt amazing. And I think it's one thing now when we learn to have difficult discussions with our children is someone had never talked to me about it. So it was this really weird experience. I was doing something I knew was wrong. I was told was wrong, but it felt good. There you go. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And so the unwanted feelings that I had about not measuring up or not being able to be as good as these other people, which I didn't even know at the time, right? They're gone for just a second. Dude, they're gone. And I felt so good. I was laughing hysterically. I felt live. I felt awake. And so no one explained to me that that happens. I was expecting like everything to be bad and dark. Like I'd always was always told. Right. But all of a sudden I felt incredible and it was like freedom. Mm. And I think there are people, there's different types, right? There are some people who use a substance and all of a sudden they feel a feeling they've always wanted something that they can't even, they can't find anywhere else. Other people do these things and they don't like how it feels. Okay. That's kind of the difference between someone who has an addictive tendency and someone who's more what they call a normie, right? Right. It's hard to understand this too, but I felt that feeling. It was amazing. So long story short, I kind of was in this tug of war period where I was raised right. I knew right because of my upbringing, my parents, church, all these things. I shouldn't be doing these things. But yet as I did them with these certain group of friends, for whatever reason, I, I continued to feel like this freedom and joy and excitement that right. I just couldn't find anywhere else. Right. So that was a crazy little tug of war that lasted for a while. Life, you know, I put my life back together. I'd fall back here. I put my life together, fall back here. Mm-hmm. I actually got my life put back together. Finally, mm-hmm. I actually went and served a humanitarian mission for my church mm-hmm. Came back, went to school and I had some, I had some injuries from a snowboarding accident and something else where I had some pain in my back and mm-hmm. here I was piecing my life back together. And I had a friend from, from previous, a previous friend that I had done things with. I shouldn't have who popped back into my life um, and introduced something to me, which I didn't even know what it was at the time, but it came in a little cute Brown bottle with a white lid and, you know, from a doctor. So it's nothing too scary or crazy. And it was Oxycontin is what it was. And this, Opioids. Uh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the very first time I did that with him again, I knew I shouldn't, but it just kind of out of desperation. I was having some challenges in life. Things were kind of hard just dealing with emotional and physical pain, whatever. I just did it for whatever reason. Cause it didn't, right. look, didn't look scary. He broke this pill in half and then he broke the half in half again. And he's like, here, just take this. And it was like, it was like the, it was half the size of a, like a, 
a piece of rice. And so oh, wow. I was like, okay. and that one pill or part of a pill, piece of a pill, yeah, right. changed the entire tra- trajectory of my life. Oh my goodness. Um, it just captivated me. And for quite a while, what I did is I, I was very functioning, high functioning in my addiction. I developed an opioid addiction that was just, I still managed my life. I still went to school, did all the things I was supposed to in life. No one knew, totally lived in secret. And <clears throat> what I proved is what everyone proves that over time, addictions are progressive. Right. I always start with one thing and they progress to something else. And with opioids, it quickly progresses because it's fun for a few weeks. And then what happens is you start to depend on it where you get so sick that without it, you can't go to the bathroom. You can't stand up straight. You're physically ill. And so you're taking it to feel normal. And it just continues to bury you deeper and deeper and deeper to where not only are you physically hooked, but you're emotionally hooked. So (laughs) to sum it all up, long story short, here I was this little Eagle Scout piano playing kid who did great in school and had an awesome upbringing to it led me down a path where I became homeless. Um, I was using illicit drugs. I ended up getting incarcerated. I had multiple felony possessions. I had the SWAT team kick in my door. I had friends die. I saw people die. I came close to death several times of my own. And it's one of those things when people see, like if you saw any of my mug shots, I looked like death itself. Right. They don't realize that there were a few mistakes that just led someone down that path. And it got really bad. My dad and my brother found me dead in the basement of an abandoned home, well, near death, and carried me out of there. And I just began this journey. This was May 1st, 2007. So it's been about 16 and a half years. And it's been an incredible journey. How were you able to end your addiction? Like, how were you able to burst free from those chains, from those secrets that kept you sick? Well, I had a family who learned they were, they were actually part of the problem for a while. And then they got some help and a few tools to like, learn how to effectively intervene. Of course, also I had pending charges. I had a judge, I had jail and those things kind of, forcing me into some sort of program, but it was really the desire to live. Like everything I'd learned as a kid and and grew up doing, I wanted to live. I wanted my life, but I couldn't, I couldn't move an inch when I was in that addiction. So at the the beginning, it was forced at the beginning. It was because I had to, to live. Uh It's had to, because I'd go to jail. It had to, because my family was done supporting me in any, I had no other choice. Right. And along that way, you know, and I, I have this complex program now, but one of the things that's interesting is when I teach people the number one component to a, a person's recovery, I always ask people, what, what do you think it would be the number one component? And, you know, there's lots of different guesses. And of course, a big argument would be God, right? Right. People talk about different things, the willingness, this and that, but it's time, mm-hmm. time, time to be able to connect with God, time to even be able to hope that you can heal. So to answer your question, it was kind of forced at the beginning. I had right. to go to detox and then I went to a treatment facility because the op- the options were do that or I knew I was facing a, a lot of time locked up for these felony possessions. And I did. I went through a full program of recovery. I was I was in rehab for 90 days. I came out. I went to sober living, got a job. And these court dates were still lingering over my head. And I went 
Um, this is during the opioid epidemic. And the judge was just, I mean, there was, the courts were flooded with cases like this. I bet. The judge dropped the hammer. And here I was four months into recovery, clean, getting my life back together. And I had to go serve some time. And then I went through an entire different process through the, the court system, which is called CATS. It's like this get out of jail free card, but you have an ankle monitor and you go pick up garbage on the side of the right. road, go to classes all night. I, I went through it intensive rehabilitation from one of the best treatment centers in the country, all the way down through government funded programs, probation. And really what happened is I went through a period of sobriety and people don't understand the difference. I think there, there's sobriety and there's recovery. And sobriety is the abstinence of what you use, the substance, right? It's the abstinence of what it is that had you um, ragdolled. And recovery is that plus like a deep dive into your emotional well-being. And the only way a person gets to that point of recovery, again, is time. Right. So I had a lot of help. I did. I had a lot of help and support. And it taught me something that that there is a lot of help needed. Families can't do this on their own. They need nope. professionals, clinicians, facilities to get the process started. Mm -hmm. But in order for a person to have long-term success, they have got to have support. Yeah. They need a support system. They can't just be doing it on their own. Nope. It's always going to breed failure. And with failure comes self-loathing, self-hate. You feel good for that five seconds, but then afterwards you're like, man, I screwed up again, man, I'm worthless, man, I can't. And then the more self-hate, you get into more pain, more pain, more drugs, rinse, repeat. It's just a spiral. And if you try and do it on your own, you're never going to get out. Never. Well, that, you're not, that spiral's terrible. I, so, you know, I spent the last several years working as a certified interventionist and I built a program for families. But previous to that, I was just kind of like putting my own life back together, working. Um, I actually got into the restaurant business for a while, kind of helped rebuild the financial ruins so I could have a family. And it was, they found out that running restaurants is the only thing harder than overcoming a drug addiction. Um, <laughs> yeah. Food industry is ruthless, man. Everyone who does that, kudos to you. But it was, I learned a lot and I went through a lot and I just, it's like you said, people get stuck in that cycle. You know, addiction's interesting because it's the only fatal illness on the face of the planet where families more often argue, disagree, or fail to do something about than any of the others. Yeah. Right? And it's the only one where the sick person will fight to stay sick. Yeah. It, it is. It's absolutely insane. And it's ravaging so many individuals and families mm. and I think there's a big topic that never gets talked about, right? Like people get to this place of despair, like you just described so well, this polarizing, like self-loathing and hate. And now they're stuck in this deadly trap. Some people who find these substances, like I don't even care if it's abusing Adderall or if it's abusing fentanyl. Right. They found something that was the solution. Uh... That was the solution for them. And now we all know over time that solution... <laughs> No, yeah, is one of Satan's greatest weapons. But yeah, people who, when we look at the increase in suicide, mm -hmm. are the ones that just never found that bridge with those substances. They, they just kept white knuckling it to a place where they couldn't take it. Most people that segue into self medicating through these things, it's because some, you know, they just they they actually found this thing that they thought was the solution. Yeah. And, then it progresses and it turns, it's just a deadly trap. And 
there are so many families facing it. And unfortunately, so many of them try to just handle it in-house. Right. They're we got this. Them. We got this. It's fine. It's fine. We'll just, you know, we'll just, knock we'll, it off. Lock you, we'll just lock you in the attic for a little bit and you'll be yeah. fine. They just need to go talk to their religious leader. They just need to knock it off. Right. Or <laughs> soon, as soon as COVID's over, as soon as the winter's over, as soon as they finish school at this terrible place, then everything's going to get better. No, it isn't. No, no. It's in your psychology. Yeah. You need to change your psychology and that's yep. not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to happen without getting professionals involved. And so along your journey, okay. So, so you got cleaned up, you know, got forced to cleaned up and then you'd want, had the desire, you cleaned up your life. Where did your living proof come along? When did you open yeah. up this practice where you started helping other people with their addictions? Well, I appreciate you asking that. And it was, it happened naturally to where it was just undeniable. So I spent about a decade doing the restaurants and then I think it's about four and a half, five years ago, or sorry, no, it's about six years ago. Um, I started like realizing as the more I opened up and told my story, because it didn't matter if I was at church, if I was in any other sort of s- circle of society, I I openly spoke about what I had been through. Mm-hmm. It was just part of my recovery. And I felt like it was just the right thing to do. And there were a few times, I'd say a handful where I would talk with someone and that would be the last time. <laughs> They talked to me, but (laughs) I could not believe how it didn't matter if I was on a treadmill at the gym, if I was at church, it was sitting there watching one of my kids' sporting events, chatting it up with a new person. When I shared this story, oh, who are you? What are you doing? I told them just a little snippet of what I'd been through immediately. It was like, oh my gosh, my husband, da-da-da-da-da, and no one knows. I've never told anyone, or my daughter, or my son, or my, my grandson, everybody was just immediately like someone very close to them was going through this. And they're like, what did you do? Where, what, like, we don't know where to go. We, we, we've been trying this, this, and this. And so what I realized quickly was there was a multitude of resources. If you're a sick person, I don't care if it's a sex addiction, cocaine addiction, there are facilities. We live in the state of Utah, which has more abundance of facilities than any yeah. other state in the country, by the way. But There are a lot of resources out there where you can get help and support. But what I found is there's little to no resources for who? The family. Oh, my goodness. So the family's sitting there going, we want to help. We've been trying. Trust me, we've been pleading with them, begging with them, threatening them. Everything we could think of to get through to them. And the family doesn't know what to do. So often they end up making it worse without knowing. Yeah. So, you know, that was kind of it. I said if I'm going to have an impact, everybody that goes through something wants to, to look back and be like, I want to, I want to be, I'm dedicated to the cause. Right. Right. All right. Well, if you're really dedicated and you want to have an impact, how are you going to do that? Well, I had a mentor who taught me, you need to be very specific and figure out your niche as to what you can do. Cause there's a huge problem. Addiction right. leads to everything, right? It leads to suicide. It leads to the homeless crisis we have. It leads to the corrections department being overrun how, how it has been for many years. So many problems. So I just looked and I said, my story involved my family. And when my family learned and got just some tools that they needed to help, they made all the difference. Yeah. So I know that does not apply, unfortunately, for everyone. Right. There are many people whose families are the source of their problem. They are so dysfunctional and so messed up that they actually are the source of a person's problem. Yeah. But there are millions of people who come from good families, good American, God-fearing, 
families, as much as our families are all messed up, right? But right. who want to help, who are wondering how to help and they just have no clue. So that was my angle. I said, I'm going to create the playbook for families. Because unfortunately with addiction, if a person's sick, there's no guarantee. No. But I just thought, hmm, I spent a, a couple years just navigating through this whole industry, looking for what my angle was and what my specialty was. And I realized all the people that I looked up to, my mentors, people that were now in in recovery for 15, 20, 30 years who had become these incredible individuals, they all had a common theme. They all had an, a family and a little army behind them that all looked different, but they all had a support group. And I was like, you know what? That's my angle. And my hope was that these families would learn how to change the course of their loved one by learning how to effectively intervene and how to support them. But I also knew that that isn't possible all the time. Right. So what my hope was, was that those parents or those spouses whose loved one maybe dies from their addiction or they lose them forever into the addiction, that they can check off every box that they did everything they could, that there was no more things that they wish they would have tried, or maybe we should have done this, or maybe we could have tried this, that they went face to face, toe to toe with the monster of addiction. Yeah. And hopefully oh. when it's not, you know, a happy ending. So, right. That is, uh, but it's so needed, man, because so many families just don't know, like they try so hard and they don't know what to do. And they're just, they're doing what they think they know is good. But like you said, making it worse in the long run. And so as an interventionist, what are some of the keys to helping those in recovery stay in recovery that you help families realize? Because, I mean, we got we got substance abuse and whatnot now, but now we got, you know, gateway, you know, like we said earlier, the gateway drug of social media, of the Internet, things like that. And so how can parents proactively help their kids, you know, A, stay away, but B, once they've, you know, gone to hell and back stay well there are two components like the best the best weapon against these addictions when they turn into these progressive life-threatening things because they always do not not a single human being on the face of the earth ever thought it would with them or their child but it always does right always prevention is the best like if we could get really good at prevention then people like me and the thousands of behavioral health centers around the country would all go out of business and it would be great, but we, the prevention would be the key. So that's where I wish there was more emphasis when our kids are younger. And I, we could talk about this for hours and I know you guys have a lot of great resources and you guys promote a lot of things, but one of the best things that I've seen that have helped to deter people from going down these paths is one having difficult conversations with our kids at an earlier age, right? Like mm, yeah, I, we, we could get through, we could go on and on about, Oh like, yeah. We're really bad you, about this in religious communities. Really bad. About it. Yeah. The worst, we're the worst, because it's such a, it's such a sinful discussion to talk about drugs, sex, pornography, anything yep. like that. And yep. we're so scared of it, but because we're so scared of it, it makes it the forbidden fruit. The kids are so compelled to partake of because it's forbidden there. People fall into addiction for like kind of really one of two things. Sometimes people experience trauma. Maybe they were sexually abused or raped. Maybe they like something drastic, 
Maybe they were neglected. Maybe they never had any friends. Maybe they got bullied. So there's this real trauma that forces them into this self-medication. The other side where I find there to be a lot of people too is people who are dealing with little things that are, you know, somewhat difficult are curious, like myself, mm-hmm. it's kind of this curiosity and this thing. So yes, it's like that forbidden fruit mentality you brought up. We didn't, our, I don't think our grandparents knew really well. Our parents didn't know really well. And we dang well better learn now. Yeah. That when your kids are little, you've got to have these conversations, talk about things. My boys, some people think it's crazy, but I talk to them all the time about how incredible drugs and alcohol are. That it, There's probably nothing. Like if we're out riding our motorcycles or doing something crazy, going to Disneyland, I kind of help them compare it to be like, hey, this is what it makes people feel like. But there's a catch. Yeah. Catch is it makes you feel like that. And then we'll go on vacation and they'll see some homeless guy yelling at a telephone pole that's out of his mind. Right. And they're like, how does that happen? I'm like, then I tie it back together. This is where it leads people. Mm-hmm. It's so amazing that it takes hold of people and ends up leading them to this. So having these like difficult things, but talking about sexuality and some of those things with our kids, there was an interesting thing. We have a podcast and I had this lady, Tammy Hill on there once. I'm sure you know her. Mm-hmm. She is one of the leading sex experts, professors in the country. She teaches at Brigham Young University. Yeah. She's this older lady who's such a baller. She openly talks about like masturbation, orgasm, yeah. sexual. And she is so, such a spiritual giant. So we asked her, I said, you know what? People always want to know. And I know we're getting lost, a little off subject. Oh, you're good. You're good. Let's roll. She, she goes, I said, People we work with a lot wonder, at what age should we start talking to our kids about sex and sexuality, right? Like what age? Every parent wants to know. Yeah. So, you know, we're thinking, well, younger and younger, as soon as you can, as soon as they understand. She, We asked her and she said, well, I would recommend the night you bring them home from the hospital when they're born. And we were like, (laughs) what? Are you crazy? (laughs) But what she said rocked my world. Every time I still say it gives me the chills. She said, oh, don't worry. For years, they won't even know what you're saying or talking about. But you'll get a chance to practice talking about these difficult things, being able to look at them in the eyes. You'll be able to figure out and navigate how you feel about it. Yeah. So that you have a better understanding. And when they are able to understand you, you'll be able to connect with them so emotionally sound where most parents are like, well, did you ever, you know, and they're looking around and all awkward. And the <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wow. It's so true. So true. I that mean, so true. Oh my goodness. So prevention is a thing. You know, we always talk about like having a safe place in our home where our kids talk about things. Often people's secrets that get them sick, which is the mantra to our business. Our secrets keep yeah. us sick. They start with little things. Yeah. And over time, those little feelings just feel heavier and heavier and heavier. So there are, we could spend a whole hour talking about prevention, but you know, prevention is the kryptonite and it right. eliminate addiction. Right. But when it does turn into addiction, the number one, the number one professional recommendation is do not wait. Yeah. Do not wait for this thing to just magically go away. Do not wait for a day when they are just going to wake up and take the wheel of their life again. There's a difference between a child having bad behavior, going through like a a phase in life and those who are addicted to certain things. And once you recognize 
that what's going on is going on. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to handle this in-house. The number one cause of death, individuals 18 to 45, number one cause of death is overdose to fentanyl, a singular drug. Yeah. It, it, it's more than heart disease and car accidents combined. And then if you look, like I think number three or something is other drugs. Mm-hmm. And then if you go down to like four or five, it's alcohol-related deaths. They're not even, it's, they're not even factoring in suicide. So what I'm saying is it is the deadliest fatal illness. And yet we don't approach it the same way we do other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, so, we live in, ignorance. Like you can't overreact. People are like, Oh, well, it's not that bad. The problem is, is here's what really chaps my high. Nobody is willing to step in the ring. No families are willing to like admit this monster they're dealing with, seek professional help. Let the cat out of the bag until what? Until something like overdose or until something gets- crazy happens. Where when they look back, there were several times they knew there was a problem and they just didn't do anything about it. So don't wait. Get professional help. You can't overtreat someone. So it's just, but it is, and it will always remain to be one of the difficult things because of the stigma and all that stuff. So yeah, just kind of created this platform to try to help people where families can go and gain tools and resources about what they can do to influence their loved one and how they would support them moving down the road. Cause it will take your support and trying to navigate through that where you're not enabling them, but you're also like trying to like encourage them along the way. It, right. you're, you're, you're a cheerleader and advocate, but not an enabler. You're going to give them love, yeah. but not give them opportunity to abuse themselves. Amen. Man, this has been so good. Guys, oh, I wish we could talk for hours and hours, Danny, just because so many people need this this awakening, this support, this this thought process of we need to talk to our kids and we need to talk to them now. If you don't want them to be addicted to hard drugs later on in life, then don't let them get addicted to their devices right now. Amen. If you don't want them to have the habits that are going to ruin their life down the road, don't 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 let them build habits that are going to destroy their childhood right now. It all starts right now um so danny how can people check you out see what's going on shameless plug time let's hear it yeah please so just at your living proof and y-o-u-r mm-hmm. your living proof on all different social medias um on i think every platform we also have a youtube channel um your living dope proof. podcast yeah thank you it's all one word and then our website's just yourlivingproof.com. And so what we're hoping is that people will reach out who are dealing with this little secret. It's not even theirs, right? It's like their spouse or their child. And they're just like, what do we do? How do I help? Where, where right. can we go? Where do we... That's who we're here for. Hmm. And we're hoping that by helping them and giving them the tools, our opinion is that no, there's no greater influence for their loved one than them. Yeah. Now it, it will require their help, but so people awesome. reach out and it kind of changes a lot. We, Again, it's not for everyone, but if you are a family who wants to help and you have a loved one that you just can't get through to, get your, get yourself some support. Yeah. Um, so all that will be in the podcast description. We invite you, go check them out, guys. Go check out Your Living Proof. Go check out everything they offer. They're doing amazing things. And thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this week's episode. Just a reminder, if you'd like Save the Kids to speak at your community, there is a speaker form linked in the bio. Let's save some kids. Always remember. You are wonderful, you are worthy, and you are worth it. Go home and give your kids an eight-second hug, and we'll see you on the next one.